Welcome to episode seven, The Severity of the Chronic Pain and Coexisting Disorder Problem by Dr. Steven Grinstead, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. First of all, I want to thank you for joining me for this presentation today. This is a topic that's so near and dear to my heart. I'm Dr. Stephen Grinstead, and I've been working with people with chronic pain and coexisting disorders since 1984. And since 1996, I've been developing and finalizing my addiction-free pain management system that's geared to design the needs for people with chronic pain and coexisting disorders. You know, I've had a lot of exciting things that I've done over my career. I've made it a point to really be eclectic, but the common theme has always been the chronic pain patient and offering them effective solutions and how to achieve freedom from suffering. And right now, we're in the midst of one of the worst problems. Some people are calling it's reached epidemic levels of opioids and chronic pain. And that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the nature of the problem in my first presentation. And then I want to invite you to come back for number two and three. Number two, I'll be talking about the obstacles that face this population. And finally, number three, out of the problem into the solution. And it's been an exciting journey. In 1986, I was hired by a hospital chemical dependency treatment program to be the primary therapist for a pain track. One of the reasons they hired me was because, number one, I've been living with chronic pain since 1982, and number two, I've been doing it in a recovery-friendly way because I'm also in recovery from alcohol and pain pills, and number three, I knew how to relate to this population. Unfortunately, though, they hired me and didn't train me. They just sent me in raw. Anybody else ever have that happen? It's really an interesting phenomenon. But I learned a lot. Yes, I made a lot of mistakes, but mistakes are only learning opportunities if they're addressed appropriately. And then over the years, I started looking at how to make this more effective by transferring what we call the technology of pain management to other people. And I ran into my great mentor, Terry Gorski, in 1991 and worked with him for several years before he finally sent me out starting in 1996 to start training people. And that's also the year I started developing the addiction-free pain management system, which I'll talk about later. And as a result, I got to do research, I got to do clinical trainings, and in a 20-year period between 1996 and 2016, I trained over 40,000 healthcare providers in this type of model. Today, we're at an interesting time. We're at what people are calling the intersection of chronic pain and opiates. So there's a lot of differences out there. You'll hear the terms opiate and opioid used interchangeably, but they're not. They're similar, but they're different. Opioids are basically the pharmaceutical synthetics, and opiates are the raw product like morphine or heroin. And right now at this intersection, some interesting choices need to be made. Because over the last several years, one of the choices was to implement the war on drugs and transfer it to the war on pain doctors, the war on pain patients. And that hasn't really worked really well. And we need to get into a collaborative approach and work with people and support people because it is an overwhelming problem. And that's what I want to do in this segment of my presentation is talk about the overwhelming nature of the problem we're experiencing. So one of the things that I've looked at is looked at a number of different researches and a big study came out from the Institute of Medicine, who's been around since the 1970s, and every year they provide an annual report. 
In June of 2011, they considered chronic pain a health care crisis. And that was seven years ago. They saw it because at that point, they were seeing we're spending more than a half trillion dollars in medical cost and lost productivity for people with chronic pain. And we also learned from the Journal of Pain in 2013 that people living with chronic pain experience alterations in their brain functioning from living with long-term pain and high levels of pain. They develop what's called cognitive deficits, which simply means that their thinking and emotional expression is not quite as effective as it needs to be. They also experience anxiety disorders, depressive disorders, and many other psychological issues. One of the things we know is that long-term pain may be detrimental to the brain, and sometimes, though, what's not so aware for most people is it can take years to show up. The Journal of Neuroscience in July of 2013 uh, pointed that out, that the long-term pain is detrimental and decreases the ability for the brain to endogenously control the pain. So it distorts the pain signals, basically, and leads to many comorbidities or coexisting disorders. The New England Journal of Medicine in 2016 talked about the source of the opioid epidemic. And one of the things they noticed that almost a third of Americans have some form of acute or chronic pain. And in 2014 alone, our pharmacies, United States pharmacies, dispensed over 245 million prescriptions for opioid pain relievers. Each prescription had a minimum of 30 day supply and sometimes those were three, three times a day, four times a day. So you can see the numbers of pills may get close to a billion in a year. We saw that opioids were being widely diverted and used improperly. And a lot of physicians were starting to get afraid of prescribing them and were referring their patients to pain management or just cutting them off and saying, I'm sorry, it's too risky for me to prescribe these for you anymore. You've got to go learn to live with it. And what a oh, tragedy, because they have no clue what happens to these people, the human cost of these people and their families when they're given that kind of message, because they're not taught any new coping skills. So some people say we have an opioid epidemic. Some people, we have a pain epidemic. My colleague and co-founder, Dr. Joseph Cabaret, says we have a coping skills epidemic. And people are referring to better living through chemistry. You see all the pharmaceutical commercials all the time. There's a whole many factors that led up to where we're at today. There's a great book out. It's called Dreamland that talks about the opiate and opioid epidemic and how they grew from the 1950s through current. And it was interesting that a big part of that happened in the 1990s when a group of physicians that were on the payroll of big pharmaceutical companies were going around the country talking about pain is the fifth vital sign, we need to manage pain, opiates and opioids are the solution because there's no ceiling dose, we just titrate it up until we get the effect we want. And there's no chance, if the person has real pain and they're using this prescribed, there's no chance of becoming addicted. Well, we're at the end result of that kind of thinking now. And many of these people are coming back and apologizing and saying they were wrong. It's a little bit late because a lot of people are dying, a lot of people are suffering, a lot of families are being destroyed. So there's a big cost to our communities, to our healthcare system, the overutilization of the healthcare system. It's a big problem, and we really are stuck. And But not to worry, because in my third presentation, I'm going to talk about what we see as part of the solution. Now, 
That same article in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2016 talked about more than a third of the 44,000 drug overdose deaths in 2013 were attributed to pharmaceutical opioids. This is about 37%. And heroin accounted for an additional 19%. So the opioids and opiates contributed to over half of the overdose deaths in that year. There was also at the same time a noted a parallel increase in the rate of opioid addiction that affected at that point about 2.5 million adults. That's not even counting a lot of the adolescents. There's a lot of misconceptions about opioids and addiction. Matter of fact, there's a lot of misinformation about addiction, period. A lot of people see it as a legal issue, a forensic criminal justice issue. Other people see it as a moral issue. Some people see it as an impulse control issue, bad decision issue. What I found interesting was the New England Journal of Medicine in March of 2016 came out talking about the misconceptions. What they said was many people think that addiction is the same as physical dependence and building tolerance. And it's not. Those are way different terms. You know, dependence is, for opioids, is you start taking them, and when you stop, you can go into withdrawal because your body's got used to them. And tolerance is the phenomenon with many type of substances that after a while they stop being effective at the dose you started with and you need to start taking more. Where addiction is really a neurobiologic brain disease that develops over time and impacts people biologically, psychologically, socially, and spiritually. Many people see addiction as mainly a set of bad choices people make. And there is some truth to people getting into the addiction development cycle because there are stages people go through. At initial exposure, and this is what a lot of people don't recognize, when the person is first exposed to a substance, whether it's opioids, opiates, heroin, alcohol, or other drugs, their first experience will depend upon two factors, their genetics, their history, and their environment. So people with a genetic history of alcoholism or other drug addiction in their family system or mental health issues, or people who live in a dysfunctional, distressing situation are at higher risk when they're exposed to these substances. That's why now there's a lot of screening instruments that ask strategic questions so we can be more careful about monitoring people that have these red flags. So after the initial exposure, there's the ongoing use. And people that are high risk, when they hit the stage of using it ongoing, they move into seeking and reaching or what I call doctor shopping sometimes because they build tolerance more rapidly than the normal population. Uh, they get some secondary effects from the medication under the physical analgesic pain relief. Many of these people are using it to medicate psychological and emotional symptoms or family stress or distress. And when they move a little bit further and start building tolerance, as they take more and more, the side effects get worse and worse. And then they move into the danger zone of abuse and what I call pseudo-addiction. And that term gets way overused, so I'm not going to talk about that very much. But we talk about medication misuse, abuse, dependence, and addiction. And what a lot of people mistakenly believe is... People with chronic pain that take their medication as the doctor prescribes won't get addicted. And for many people, that's absolutely true. But for a subset of people, that's absolutely false. It does not protect patients 
from addiction to their opioid medications. And there's another mistaken belief out there that only long-term use of certain opioids produce addiction. And one of the demons, of course, is Oxycontin, sometimes called hillbilly heroin. But other opiates, morphines, the Vicodins, the hydrocodones, they can be just as at risk for developing substance use disorder or addictive disorder as any other medication, any of the other opioids. And the other factor is, I've already mentioned, there is a subset of people that are at higher risk, but anybody living with chronic pain on ongoing use of opioids and opiates can be vulnerable to developing medication misuse, abuse, pseudo-addiction, or addiction. The big problem is, what do you do once people are tagged? Well, a big part of the problem of this ongoing uh, epidemic with chronic pain and opioids is many people mistakenly believe that medication-assisted therapies like Suboxone or Buprenorphine are just substitutes. You're just substituting one drug for another, and they're not seeing that it's actually a bridge. It's harm reduction until we can give people the biopsychosocial spiritual tools to where they can manage their life more effectively. So another factor that's causing a big problem in this country is over the past several years, we're seeing an uptick in heroin. So there's also what's known as a heroin epidemic going on. And how is that connected? And the Time Magazine in September of 2016 came out with a great expose talking about heroin-related overdoses have almost quadrupled in the last decade. More than 10,000 deaths in 2014. And what we're seeing and have been seeing for a number of years now is heroin's being laced with synthetic fentanyl and carfentanil, which are two powerful synthetic opiates that are linked to a big string of overdose deaths starting in the Midwest and Appalachia, but now since 2016 it's spread to other areas of the country. We see it here in California as well. And we have a patient in our program right now that unfortunately had got cut off from his prescription pain medication and started going out to the street. And he was in big trouble and he was using a lot more than he told us at first. And he went into a psychotic break when he finally got into the detox treatment center because he, a lot of what he was getting was laced with other drugs, not just uh, fentanyl and carfentanil, but also a lot of the methamphetamines and different things like that. And it was, it was alarming what happened. In June of 2016, CNN had a big report on why chronic pain patients turn to heroin. Well, for me, what I've seen is when patients get cut off by their doctors, they freak, they panic, they start looking for other alternatives. When they go out on the street to try to find somebody that will sell them the opioids they've been taking, they find out they're very, very expensive. And that's what this report showed. And how it's amazing how the age is starting to be uh, 23 is kind of like the onset. And it's more likely to be someone that lives in an affluent area. And they got led to heroin through painkillers that were prescribed by their doctors, or they had an ER visit, a surgery, a dental appointment. And while heroin's illegal, illicit, they say, and opioid pills such as OxyContin or FDA-approved, each one, though, is derived from the poppy plant. So their chemical structures are highly similar. That's why they're in such great demand. And it's precisely because of that there's so many similarities that pain pill 
addicts frequently turn to heroin when those pills no longer are readily available. And it's a lot cheaper than buying those drugs on the street. The opioids on the street are about a dollar per milligram. So a 60 milligram pill will cost $60. And they're saying, this report showed, that you can obtain the equivalent amount of heroin for about one-tenth of that price. There's some really good entrepreneurs out there that are producing high-quality product at low prices to get another customer base, the chronic pain patients. So another reason people are turning to heroin. It's cheaper. Fair Health Systems put out a white paper in September of 2016 that talked about the cost of opioid-related treatment has risen over a thousand percent from 2011 to 2015, and that private payers' average costs for a patient diagnosed with opioid abuse or dependence were more than 550 percent higher than the other per-patient costs for people that did not have that issue. One of the big reasons was the ER visits made up a large percentage of the cost for these people. So when you go to an emergency room, at the low side, it may cost $3,000. On the high side, it may be $10,000 or more. That adds up quick. A local Medicare provider here in our area of California was talking about their at-risk patients were going to the emergency room three or four times a month. But then we found out that they were underestimating that. And as we dug in deeper, they were going once or twice a week at the average of six to $7,000 a visit. And it was driving up the utilization of the healthcare system and overusing a lot of these budgeted dollars. So something has to happen. This same report by Fair Health talked about many people have been led to believe that the biomedical approach is the solution. That's pills, shots, interventional pain procedures, and surgeries is the only thing these patients need. And while that might be true for a large percentage of these people, there's a subset of patients who end up overutilizing the healthcare system and they have very disappointing outcomes. They aren't getting help. We'll, we'll talk about the solution in my final presentation, but we need to step away from the biomedical model it's out of control and it's expensive. One of the biggest things to determine is you can't put a price tag on somebody dying from overdose because it impacts friends, family, and community to a significant degree. The Journal of the American Medical Association is reporting that in 2010, this has been a while, and I'm using this this year because this is the first time we started seeing this dramatic increase, but in 2010, of the 38,000 drug overdose deaths in the United States, well over half involved pharmaceuticals. And not surprising to me, the most common pharmaceuticals were opioids, which rated over 75%, and the benzodiazepines like the Ativan, the Valium, the Xanax, they were about 30%. And then other prescription meds went down the chain. The other reason I like this report is because they also pointed out the fact that even when the other pharmaceuticals like benzodiazepines were the, the original cause of death, when you look, 77% of the time, they also had opioids in their system. And like for antidepressants, for example, when the overdose was from antidepressants, uh, almost 58% of these people had opiates. And when we had uh, other analgesics, 
uh, it was well over half also, 56%. So what are we going to do? You know, these overdose numbers keep going up. The pain medicine news talked about in 2016 that their concern was for people in the Medicaid, Medicare and Medicaid. And they're twice as likely at that point to be prescribed opioids. This is starting to shift, but it's still a problem. And the big problem with this is they are also six times more likely to experience overdose. About 28,000 people overdosed in 2014 from prescription pain meds. And in a 15-year period, it's more than tripled. The overdose rate for deaths from prescription pharmaceuticals have more than tripled. And back in 2015, 2016, people were starting to rally and cry for changes, changes, changes. And we still haven't really got any really good, effective, appropriate changes in place. You know, as bad as the overdose situation is, for every person that dies from an overdose, there's 10 other people that have admissions to programs for abuse or dependency. There's 32 people that go to emergency rooms for misuse or abuse. 130 people go into treatment who are dependent or addicted. And here's the big number, uh, 825 non-medical users. So for every overdose death, there's about a thousand other people that are experiencing some kind of significant problem from these pharmaceuticals. A lot of people are arguing that there really isn't an opioid epidemic. We're just being overly alarmed. The Journal of Advances in Addiction Recovery in 2015 in the winter stated that, uh, you know, there's an estimated 2 million people in the United States who suffer from substance use disorders related to prescription pain meds, opioids. And that the admission for these people has quadrupled in a 10-year period between 2002 and 2012. That's a big jump. And also, overdose deaths during that same time period more than tripled. So yeah, there's a big problem. And there's also been a big problem with a lot of these people could be significantly helped with what's called medication-assisted addiction treatment, or MAT. But currently, only a third of the people who really need MAT will get it. I'll talk more about that later in one of my presentations, but MAT is definitely one of the uh, solutions, but there's also a lot of obstacles or roadblocks. There's a lot of people that don't believe in it, and it's causing a lot of problems. The New England Journal of Medicine in January of 2016 talked about the one of the most common reasons people go to the emergency room was for back pain. And they said that there were more than 2.5 million low back pain related visits to emergency rooms annually. That's really driving up the utilization of our healthcare system. And opioids and muscle relaxants in the same study showed that these have proven to be ineffective for low back pain. But yet, that's often the go-to. Even before people try some of the other go-to medications, like non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, the Motrins, the Aleves, that work more effectively, actually, they're often prescribed hydrocodone or Vicodin or Lortab. And the study goes on to show that in their research, their double-blind research, that people on placebo or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories were just as likely to get pain relief 
than people on the opioids. One of the biggest other problems, I think, with the chronic pain epidemic is one of the big things we're missing is our failure to recognize or diagnose coexisting disorders, coexisting problems. Now, sometimes they get diagnosed, but they don't get treated, and that's just as big a travesty, if not more. So, some of the more common ones, I've already mentioned medication abuse and addictive disorders for people with chronic pain, but also many people with chronic pain have major unresolved trauma histories, post-traumatic stress disorder. And sometimes the trauma is from childhood, sexual trauma, physical trauma, military trauma, rape, domestic violence. There's all kinds of different trauma that people have had. And men, many of these people have said that when they started using their medication, it helped the symptoms of that trauma. Other people develop depression, depressive disorders. That's probably one of the number one coexisting disorders that I've seen in my practice for years. Another one is anxiety disorders. Then another biggie that affects almost every pain patient I've worked with is sleep disorders. It's really hard to get comfortable sleep when you're uh, experiencing high levels of untreated or mistreated pain. Now, sometimes people are sleeping too much, too, because they're over-medicated. There's many people, one of the coexisting problems is their thinking and emotional regulation and decision-making is impaired, not from the medications, but from living with constant high levels of pain. And then one of the other most common ones we see at our program is people have disordered eating or eating disorders. These are just some of the obstacles that get in the way. And I'm going to do a whole section on the other obstacles. But the problem is a real one. We're in an epidemic situation. And there's not very many people that are out there trying to find an authentic solution. There's a lot of lip service being paid. So our premise is we've got to really totally get in and explore, examine, and research the problem. And everyone agrees that there's a problem, but nobody agrees exactly what the problem is or how to address it. I've just covered many of the highlights of this problem that I think need to be in people's awareness in the healthcare field. And it doesn't matter what area of healthcare you're in, that you're going to see people that have chronic pain and coexisting disorders, including substance use disorders, that need help. They don't need punished. They don't need cut off from their meds and told to learn to live with it. They need support and help in finding a way to have a higher levels of functioning and a better quality of life. Because right now that's one of the things we look at with our patients is how has their quality of life been impaired? There's several areas we look at for people. Their relationships you know, a lot of people have lost families, have lost custody of children. And I'm not talking about because of the substance use disorder. I'm talking about because they're low functioning because of their chronic pain disorders. When you add the substance use disorders and the other coexisting psychological disorders, the problem even gets worse. Some of these people can't work anymore. They can't walk very much or very far. Some of them need canes, walkers, wheelchairs. They also affect their ability to get restful sleep. Their nutrition is really poor and that also impacts and makes their pain condition worse. So biologically we want to assess how they've been impaired biologically. Many of these people on a 1 to 25 scale are functioning at about five, six, seven, eight. That's pretty low levels of functioning. Then we move into the psychological. This is a person's ability to manage their thoughts, emotions, 
make effective decisions, and let go of distorted thinking. A lot of people are significantly impaired in this area too because of both the chronic pain and the coexisting disorders. They're not functioning much higher than 5, 6, 7, 8, or 10. Some people a little bit higher. And then we move into the social realm. Relationships with friends, family, and community. Down on the low end, one, two, three, people become totally isolated, cut off, and in what I call a chronic pain trance. They're living in the cave. And what we want to do is help move them to more integrated and connected. Because social support and positive family support is one of the predictors of successful outcomes. But many of these people are functioning down on the really low end socially. And then the big area that often doesn't get addressed in healthcare is the spiritual realm, people's spiritual values, principles, and practices. So when they're down at the low end, these people have become totally cut off from their core spiritual values, practices, and principles. And we want to help move them more towards getting that back, getting that connection back. So biopsychosocial spiritual impact is a big part of the problem for people with chronic pain. And if they have these coexisting disorders we're talking about, it is even worse. So when we add all these quadrants up, when we're assessing people, we have a potential 100 points. Many of our patients come in at about between 30 and 40 out of 100 and we want to move them up to 70 to 80 out of 100 by discharge. So you can see that there's been a lot of impairment for this. There is definitely a chronic pain and opioid epidemic. It's costing people. And as you'll learn in my next section, there's a synergistic effect when people are living with more than one condition, when they're living with chronic pain, mental health, and substance use issues. So that's also leading to the overwhelming problem. And it's being stigmatized. Mental health treatment is stigmatized. Addiction treatment is stigmatized. Medication-assisted treatment is stigmatized. All these are fueling the problem. We really need to get the word out to people. And that's one of the reasons why I was so excited to do these CEU presentations is so we can start talking about and dialoguing about this. And you'll see on the post-test questions, I've given you the answers to many of those questions. You may need to go back and listen to some of this again, because I want all of you to ace your tests. That would be great. And we also want to have you continue the dialogue. If you have further questions or want more information, that that's something we'll also be more than happy to get to you. So each and every one of us need to be willing to step up and be part of the solution rather than complaining about the problem. And I've only covered the bare surface of the problem. It's a lot worse than people think. And it's different than people think. And many people, you know, mistakenly believe that these people did it to themselves, uh, they deserve it, and that's just not true. We've got to stop blaming the victim. We've got to understand how we got to this. We got to this through we live in an addictive society. There is you know, always wanting the quick fix, the magical fix, the silver bullet. And a lot of the pain patients believe if I find the right pill, the right doctor, the right procedure, the right chiropractor, the right acupuncturist, everything will be fine. That's part of what's fueling this epidemic proportion chronic pain, is people are depending on external locus of control instead of taking charge. We'll be talking more about in the solution portion about what to do once we identified and uncovered all these roadblocks. 
because in the next section we're going to talk about all the different strategic roadblocks, the things that get in the way of effective outcomes. But, you know, I believe that unless you fully understand the problem, it's really hard to develop an effective solution. So that's what we do in our program at Healing Place the Estates, is we try to work with people, not on people, and help them become active participants in their healing process. But we also need to help uncover exactly how they got to where they are when they got to us. So we're seeing now that there's been a lot more coverage of why people run into problems with chronic pain management and why 20 to 40 percent of the people are not being helped very much by the traditional biomedical model of chronic pain treatment and how we need to move into looking at other alternatives. So I'm going to invite you to continue with me in the other segments so we can look at this. So let's just do a quick review because it's really important that we look at how we got at this great intersection of the chronic pain and opioids. And it took a long time to get here. Again, from the 1990s, there was this big pain became the fifth vital sign, and we started wanting to stop pain. And what people weren't realizing, that it wasn't the pain that was driving this epidemic, it was the suffering or the psychological, emotional components of the pain and how we need collaboration in the healthcare system, not competition, in order to address this. We also need to be socially active and get other people involved in deep apologizing this population who develop chronic pain and coexisting disorders. That we need to remember that one of the problems is the price, the price for healthcare is going up and as a result, many of the insurance companies now are going to deny, deny, deny every kind of treatment. So they've just really gone into bunker mentality with this. We see it all the time here that even though in their policies it says they have coverage, that when we try to get them help, they, they deny it. And they keep denying it. They keep appealing it. They keep denying it. And the problem just keeps getting worse. And remember, one of the reasons it keeps getting worse for the individuals is the long-term exposure from pain is causing neuroplastic changes in the brain and the pain system. They're actually being remodeled. That's the bad news. As you'll learn in a future presentation, the good news is it can be remodeled in a healthy way. But it's this remodeling effect from living with high levels of pain. Now, the other part of it is when you're living with high levels of opioids or opiates, there's also a condition called opioid-induced hyperalgesic effect that people experience, which causes a hypersensitivity to the pain signals. So we've got those two factors happening at the same time. It's like a perfect storm for this population. And these emotional and cognitive deficits don't show up right away. So sometimes, like for example with a workers' comp case, since they don't show up for a few years, uh, they don't get treated by workers' comp because it's not part of the original injury. But yes, it really is. And that was from neuroscience in 2013. They were talking about this, that living with this high level of pain uh, is detrimental and decreases the brain's ability to control pain and frequently leads to other comorbidities like anxiety, depression. Then we also see that the pain problem is growing in the United States. That's the other part you need to remember, that right now almost a third of Americans have some form of acute or chronic pain. That's a lot of people, you know, one in three. So in other countries, it's one in five. So we're also one of the biggest utilizers of opioids in this, 
country around the world. So we have 5% of the population and we use as much as 80 to 85% of the opioids. What's with that? But now that we're having this crackdown, what we're starting to see around the world is an uptick in opioid problems around the world. Because as the market's shrinking here in the United States, it's just like when big tobacco got called out, they started marketing to other countries to capture the markets. And I think pharmaceutical companies might be doing the same thing. That's an opinion. A lot of the problem also now, and it's actually not a bad thing, is many physicians are not confident about how to prescribe opioids safely. And if they're not confident, they shouldn't be doing it. That's true. But it's finding someone who will take their patients on that has been part of the problem and which is leading to a lot of suicides and sometimes homicides. And unfortunately, you'll see news stories every once in a while. A pain patient gets cut off and they go out in a homicidal rage and they go into the doctor's office and start shooting. Or they commit suicide. So a lot of people get to that hopeless, helpless place. They're in that chronic pain pit. They see no way out. It's a horrible, awful, terrible place to be. And the other big highlight I want to go back and touch on is the overdose rates keep going up. And we have some awesome resources that show this. Journal of American Medical Association, the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, the Paramedic Pain Society, the American Society of Pain Medicine, the American Academy of Integrated Pain Management. There's a lot of different people out there that are saying the same thing and seeing the same thing in research. And there's also still another, let's look at one of the other big problems, is the mistaken beliefs about opioids and addiction and how people just really treat it differently than any other medical condition. Like a person with diabetes that is on daily insulin would never be called an insulin addict. But some people who are on other appropriate medications, using them as prescribed, not having any abuse or problems, they are dependent on their medication, but they get called opioid or opiate addicts. So there's a lot of mistaken beliefs. And the big one is that where a lot of people get started on these meds is a lot of prescribers mistakenly believe that if the person has real pain, they won't have a problem with pain medication. And for a lot of people, that's just not true. So we want to look at all these different mistaken beliefs. We also want to take a look and see if we can't advocate better for people who do get addicted to their pain meds and go into treatment. Many of them, almost two-thirds of them, will be denied medication-assisted treatment modalities. And that just is not right because there's a lot of mistaken beliefs about that and people deserve to get help. We also know that a lot of the pain patients are turned to heroin. That's another big part of the problem. So we're seeing an upsurge in the heroin epidemic because of the chronic pain epidemic. They're all connected. And the problem with a lot of these uh, overdoses is because a lot of these street drugs are being laced with synthetic fentanyl and carfentanil. And a lot of people are dying. And yet a lot of people are adverse to having make available Narcan emergency kits, which can stop an overdose. They're saying, well, they did it to themselves. You're just enabling them by, by saving their life. And I don't get that, that that's happening too. And there's a lot of reasons why the pain patients turn to heroin, because many of them are hopeless, helpless. They can't get their pharmaceuticals. They're too expensive on the street. And the heroin works as well or better than the pain meds they've been taking. So, of course, they want a relief of their suffering. Unfortunately, they want relief of suffering, not just the pain. Many people living with chronic pain 
develop a distorted pain perception. It becomes, I call it the amplifier circuit. So one way to look at it is when you develop pain, the, the ascending pain signals go up to an area of the brain called the thalamus, and it sends a signal to the frontal lobes, and we have a thinking response into the limbic amygdala system. We have an emotional response, the survival response, fight, flight, freeze. For an acute condition, that's not a big problem, but when it's chronic 24-7, day in, day out, for years or decades, this signal gets distorted. Instead of, ouch, this hurts, it becomes horrible, awful, terrible. How many of you have ever said, my pain is killing me? This is agonizing. And that's not pain, that's suffering. So we need, that's a big part of what's continuing this to be a big problem too, is people not understanding what pain is. And it's costing our country a lot of money. It's costing the healthcare a significant overutilization and the cost for treatment for opioid addiction is really shot way up. The number of people that need it, the cost for it has gone way up. It's costing uh, insurance companies over 500% more than for their other patients that don't have chronic pain and substance use disorders. And there's a high overutilization of emergency room visits. Uh, that's why if you ever have an injury or something, go to the emergency room. Well, you know, if it's not life-threatening, you're going to be waiting a while because somebody might have just been brought in that was in the middle of an overdose. And another, before I end this, I want to just talk about how the biomedical approach alone clearly doesn't work with this population. We want to make sure that we have a better solution, which I'm going to cover in a future presentation, but there's still a lot of people out there making a lot of money from the biomedical approach. Unfortunately, you see it all the time. A lot of these doctors are running pill mills. Uh, they bring people in for a five to seven minute visit, give them a month's prescription, see you next month, send them out the door. Uh, they're not offered any other psychosocial, spiritual support. They're just using the Band-Aid approach. And Band-Aid approach doesn't work when you have a serious infection and you slap a Band-Aid over it, the infection doesn't go away. It just festers and gets worse. So we do have a problem. And again, the opiates are the highest rate of pharmaceutical overdose deaths and that people on Medicare and Medicaid are much more likely, six times more likely to die from overdoses. And overdose deaths have tripled from pain meds since 2000. And we're still struggling with how to make changes and we really need to look at this because there's still people that don't think we have an opioid epidemic despite almost two million people having a substance use disorder related to their prescription pain opioids and that we're running out of treatment slots although that's starting to get different because a lot of programs are running way below census because insurance has now stopped paying for many of their covered patients. And that is a tragedy. And the MAT is just one of the big solutions that's not available for many of the people. And that's a tragedy also. We need to look at why we have this stigma against mental health and addiction in this country. People with depression and anxiety and other mental health conditions often get stigmatized and judged. People with addiction are treated like criminals, literally. Many of the people in prisons are there. Alcohol and drug related is the primary reason over half the people are in prisons. We have a problem, and I think it's our obligation 
to know as much as we can about this problem. And I hope that the little bit that I've shared today can be helpful and help you make a difference. And personally for me, I've been, I've been there. And I can never forget in 1982 when I was injured, I woke up paralyzed from the waist down and rushed to the emergency room and told I would never walk again. I was getting ready to open my own dojo. I now lost that. I also couldn't go back to my construction career. I lost that, or so I mistakenly believed. So I was seriously considering suicide as an option. And that was one of the darkest days of my life. And it was divine intervention that a dear friend of mine showed up with six of my other friends and literally saved my life and stayed with me for several weeks, hooked me up with a good trauma therapist. So I know that I could have been one of those statistics. And a lot of people have a significant amount of grief and loss about their prior levels of functioning. They can't be a good worker, a good student, a good parent. They can't be a good athlete. We've treated many athletes in our program, and there's a horrible amount of grief and loss. That's one of the intangible parts of this epidemic, is people moving into what I call the chronic pain trance, the chronic pain pit. And that's where they develop a set of dangerous mistaken beliefs and perceptions and ways of thinking that keeps them stuck. And they honestly don't think there's any way out. So when you think about that, think about this person. Here they are down at the bottom of this deep, dark pit. And they look up and they see the world going by, having fun, laughing, singing, holding hands, loving, and they see all this and they don't have it anymore. They're suffering. They're down in this pit suffering. And this is the cost that can't show up in a research report. But I've had so many of my patients share this story with me. Here they are down in the bottom of the pit and they reach out for help. And some of the results get is, oh, you, you need to handle it for yourself. I'm not going to enable you. Other people are told, I'll pray for you, but you have to figure it out for yourself. Other people are giving other conflicting advice. And then at some point, for many of these people, somebody that understands gets down there in the pit with them. And I'm talking about that when I move into the solution focus in a later series, a later chapter. So just think about these people that are stuck down at the bottom of this pit. I've talked a lot today about how they got there, and we need to uncover all the reasons we have this opioid and chronic pain epidemic in this country. And again, a big part of it, like my colleague Dr. Cabaret says, we have poor coping skills. And we go for the quick fix, we go for the pill, we go for the shot, we go for the procedure. We go to numb out alcohol. Many patients use alcohol. Some of them use it along with their medications. That's another big reason people are dying. Because opiates and alcohol and benzodiazepines definitely don't mix. So we need to understand the depth of the problem if we ever want to move into the solution. And I want to thank you for your attention, and I invite you to please participate in my next two chapters. And in chapter two, I'm going to be talking about the obstacles that affect and impact and impair these people from moving out of the problem into the solution. And in chapter three, I'm going to be talking specifically about the solution. So again, this is Dr. Stephen Grinstead. Thank you for joining me. And please make sure to continue the course evaluation and the post-test so you can get credit for listening to me. And thank you for your attention.
You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.